Hello and welcome again to another episode of our program, Develop. It is our absolute honor and privilege to have your company with us as we continue our exploration of a series that we've titled Our Holiness Movement. And uh, this series uh, really promises to reorient us concerning the brand of Christianity, the original brand of Christianity that Jesus modeled and taught and, uh, and lived out and, and died and rose again in order to introduce the rest of the world. We submit to you that Christ-likeness is the very purpose and meaning of Christianity on earth. And we have been looking uh, at the case of holiness or a case, the case for holiness by looking at the foundations. We said that throughout this series, we're going to look at the foundations, biblical foundations regarding the why we pursue holiness in the scripture. We said we're going in the next few sessions, we're going to look at the failures of Christians to live according to God's purposes for our holiness and the warnings behind uh, some of what Jesus and other disciples told us about you know, how we should live. And when we ignore that, we fail to pursue holiness. And finally, we're going to look at a mini series within this big series about the factors that enable us to live a holy Christ-like walk on earth. And uh, with our foundations, we've been looking at uh, different aspects from Genesis to Revelation to help us why we should pursue holiness, why we should be holy in all that we do, as 1 Peter 1 14 16 tells us. Uh, you know, what are the motivations? We've been looking at the person of God, the purpose of creation, God's plan. Uh, for redemption, the process of salvation with its three parts, the participation, our participation in divine nature. And today I want to look at the pattern of New Testament believers and how they lived their Christian walk. I want to share with you a story that happened around early 2000s. Uh, I uh, obviously am born in Cairo, Egypt, and uh, I migrated to Australia in 1989 as, I, uh, as a uh, 15, 16 years old. And then when uh, I got married and uh, wanted to take my wife to Egypt uh, early to, uh, 2000s, maybe 2000 or 2001, uh, we, we were going to do some visitation, we we're going to do some activities in Egypt. And uh, even though we were obviously being hosted by uh, my siblings in, in, in Cairo, well, I didn't want to create tension for them. If you've ever been in Egypt, you realize that to travel from one place to another is quite at times dramatic. <laughs> the streets, uh, uh, and I don't know now, I haven't been there for many, many years, maybe 20 years, uh, things may have changed. This is not an attack on tourism, uh, tourism in Egypt. 
But obviously in my time, it was very difficult to drive in Egypt. So I said to my brothers, and they were no Uber drivers back then. I'm sure there are many now and they're good drivers. But uh, we had to take a taxi. Well, uh, they warned me, say, don't take a taxi. They're going to take advantage of you. You don't know the streets. You don't know, uh, you know how to communicate with them properly. They're going to charge you a lot of money. Well, I said, no. Absolutely not. It's it's fine. So after I came back from uh, Susie and I, my first trip, uh, they said to me, they quizzed me on how much I paid and reluctantly and sadly I told them the truth. And they said, you were ripped off so badly. That's why you needed to ask us. I said, I can't ask you. You've got work, you've got children, it's unfair. Um, so I said, well, next time, you know, the first, this first trip, I was really quiet. I didn't want to say anything, so he doesn't uh, figure out much about me, and I, and I just, you know, got tricked. So next time, I'm going to put on my heaviest Egyptian accent, and I'm going to convince the guy that I'm not a foreigner. A foreigner. I know my thing, and I will, you know, I'm sure I'm not going to get tricked. Well, uh, as you can see, the traffic in Egypt is pretty traumatic in most cases. So I had plenty of time to talk to the to, to, to the taxi driver and and I talked about all different things and and at the end maybe maybe five minutes before we arrived at our destination the guy looked back at me like that and he's you know tw you know winking his eyes and say uh, by the way where are you from mate I'm like what I have been talking full-on Egyptian to the best of my capacity for all this time. And he's telling me where I'm from. I said, what do you think I'm from? You know, well, of course I'm from here. He said, no, you probably were from here. But you probably went overseas somewhere to some Arab country or some you know, English-speaking uh, country. But you're you obviously not from here at the moment. I said, well, that, mate, why you say that? It says, because the language that you're using, we used to use that 10 years ago. But the, the language changed. People don't talk like this anymore. Your jokes are, are not the same. Your, uh, your, the way your, your terminology, the, the slang phrases that you use are not the way we speak at the moment. I could not believe it. Obviously, I was going to be ripped off again. <laughs> but I was so mesmerized that my lingo as 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 it doesn't have the same emphasis uh, these days and I wonder if our modern approaches to Christianity have become very similar to my experience in that taxi cab. You know the reality is some of us have rehearsed phrases and languages about our faith and about our doctrine, about our Christianity. We have the jargon down pat, but it has an outward godliness with no power that resembles the life that we live. Others of us have refused the old-fashioned type of uh, lingo and behaviors that associated with the New Testament scripture. Just like this taxi driver thought that language, man, is an old-fashioned type of language. And I wonder, even with my kids now, 
in Australia, when I write to them a text, they, one time my daughter said to me, you can't put a full stop at the end of the sentence. That's actually like, it's a description or it's a, it's a shorthand for saying, I don't want to talk with you anymore. Wow. Since when the, the full stop has become a swear word? <laughs> But lingos come and go and some people refuse to maintain old-fashioned ways of doing things. And, and, and some of us have redefined our approaches to Christianity. And now we're more politically correct. Now we're so more socially oriented. Now we're more activist and the like. And I'm not saying any of this is, is not part of Christianity. All I'm saying is sometimes we have divorced the heart and the core of the Christian faith from our expression of it. And we say, oh, you know, this is a contemporary interpretation of the life of Christians in the New Testament because we're different cultures and different contexts and have different needs. But maybe I wonder if you would allow me to share with you that the people in the New Testament have had a more closer uh, proximity with the apostles that connected with Jesus face to face. Uh, they had uh, closer connections with the, with the teaching, the oral teachings of Jesus that were obviously permeated the early church. They had clearer illustrations of the ways of life of Jesus and the apostles that they resembled. And maybe, just maybe, we're missing out on the original brand of Christianity because we reinterpret in a contemporary way. And I'm not saying that we don't need to uh, contextualize our faith, but I do dare say we can't take away the core of Christ's message to us. And that's exactly what I read in the message of Paul to the church in Colossae. Uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians uh, from a prison in Rome, uh, most likely uh, when he was under house arrest for a couple of years. He wrote it around uh, 60 AD. Uh, Colossi was located on, uh, um, on a particular river around other um, uh, areas where there were two other uh, churches as well. And this particular region uh, were primarily uh, Gentile uh, uh, believers and Colossi in particular was reached during uh, Paul's stay in Ephesus for three years. A guy by the name of uh, Epaphras uh, received the message of Christ and he went to Colossi and uh, you know, uh, preached the gospel and a church was established as a result of his endeavor. And uh, while the Gentile uh, believers had a particular old way of living, uh, they were also hampered by a group of false teachers that came into the church. Uh, some may have been of Jewish background and talked about festivals and circumcision and, and uh, you know, appropriate type of food that they had to eat. But they may have been also another group of, of, of um, false teachers who perpetuated the heresy of, uh, you know, different types of knowledge it was potentially uh, a start of 
the Gnostic heresy uh, that, that was prevalent in the second century. Uh, but they talked about the worship of angels, the different levels of knowledge and, and, and so forth. And, and Paul was confronted with what the believers uh, may know and how they live in this environment of paganism uh, as in their society, but also the false teachers that were invading the church. To, to this group of people, uh, Paul wanted to highlight the supremacy of Christ uh, and, and teach the proper doctrine and tell them this will impact your life. So the first segment of Colos, uh, the, the, the letter to the Colossians is all about doctrine, is the supremacy of Christ. But then he talks from starting from chapter 3 about the duty of the Christians who believe the correct doctrine. And there he says to them, you used to walk in these ways, the ways of pagan uh, unbelievers, uh, the ways of life in a, if you like, a secular world that doesn't uh, subscribe to the standards of God in the life you once lived. And then he says, but now you've got a different lifestyle. You've got a different manner of life. And that manner of life, Paul was about to uh, explain how it must be different in different spheres of their lives. So in Colossians uh, chapter 3 verse 1 until chapter 4 verse 6, he speaks about the practical implication of their position in Christ. He speaks about their duties as believers, how to live, not just what to believe. It's beliefs in the first couple of chapters. Now it's about behavior, how to live. And it impacts their new life of who they are, their identity, and as a result, their conduct. That what we would often refer to as their possibility. How to live based on our identity and our nature in Christ. How to collaborate with the Spirit in a daily endeavor. And then from verses three, uh, um, chapter 3, verses 9 to 17, he talks to them about the relationship within the church family. And then from verses 18 to 21, he talks about their interaction with their households, with their family members. And then he launches from verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, about their work and their interaction with people at work. And finally, he talks about dealing with outsiders, people who are outside the family of faith from four, uh, chapter 4 verses 2 to verses 6. All of that is based on the first section about their new life. So I want to address that with you briefly because it brings about the same foundation, the same motivation that we've been talking about concerning pursuing a life of holiness. He's going to talk to them about their identity, and their calling. So let's look uh, together from the very beginning of chapter 3. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
And again in chapter uh, 3 verses 9 to 10, he says to them, Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And please notice with me, that Paul gives the grounding, gives the foundation, gives the motivation for how they should live their life as New Testament believers. So notice the word since, or uh, if with a, um, an, an explanation that it's actually happened, it's since that took place, since that you are united to Christ through His death and resurrection, what must you do? You need to set your hearts and, and your minds on things above. What, what are things above? Things above where Christ is seated. And obviously Christ uh, is not seated at the right hand of the Father because it, that's just a metaphor to help us understand His place of honor because God is a spirit. But His place of honor and authority, His sovereign rulership. And when we look up, we are pursuing with our affection and our mind the person of Christ. Why? Because we've been united to Him. So we focus on what matters most to us. Our old life has gone and our new life is now focused on a brand new vision, brand new hopes, brand new dreams. Christ, as Paul says, to me to live is Christ. You see, the the New Testament believers, the original followers of the brand of Christianity, they esteemed Christ so highly. He was their life. He wasn't part of their life. He was their life. And again, it says, since you have taken off your old self, that is your sinful self. But can you see that it's not just about their identity, that they've taken off the old self as if, okay, I've, uh, in, uh, in baptism, I, I have been baptized with Christ, as if it's just a once uh, experience. It's saying with its practices. That means it's ha it has daily repercussions because you take off the practices, that means you withhold living that way of life. And in, uh, in Ephesians, in a similar passage, in Ephesians chapter 4, starting from verse 17 and particularly around verse 22, he speaks about taking off the old, which is being corrupted. He's moving towards corruption and then putting on the new self, which is being renewed. So while the old self is being corrupted, corrupt and corrupted over time, the new self is new and renewed over time. Say, so saying, here you are a new person. You have a new position. You have a new standing with Christ. And that happens because of your union with Christ, His death and His resurrection. And then He continues with the imperatives. That means the indicatives is what happened to us because of God. The imperatives of what it means what we need to do because of what God did for us. And he says, put to death. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God 
is coming. The first thing, the first imperative, the first expression of our practical walk with God because of our position in God is to put to death. That means to not live with compatibility to your old manner of life. You are no longer living the old existence. You are not aligned to the ways you used to live. That means put it to death. Say no to that. Resist the urge to express that type of life. He's saying, put it to death. And, uh, and in order to see that this is actually actions, not just merely an experience or a mystical concept or a theoretical assertion, he says this relates to the sinful nature that you've inherited because of the virus of sin. And he says that refers to sexual immorality. This is the way the pagans in Colossae lived. This was actually the same way they used to live. Uh, before they've come to encounter Christ. This was the natural way. Sexuality and immorality back then and now is king. When, when we attack the idea of living loosely an immoral life, it's because that's the characteristics of the old nature, the unregenerate person. They live loosely, immorally. They basically living for their own pleasures and all those expressions different from Ephesians that takes talks about uh, other things related to interactions with others. This relates to sexual immorality, impurity, lust, uh, you know, filthy, um, filthy, uh, the, the idea of impurities, a, a filthy mind or filthy uh, uh, thoughts and, and then evil desires and passions and then talk about greed. Greed may not relate to uh, resources, but greed in sexuality where, where we use people for our own pleasures, where misuse of people for our own advantage. And, uh, and idolatry, which is you put sex as, and, and sexual pleasures as your God, the thing that you are following, the things that you're living for. And, uh, and you live for that idol. And uh, by the way, because of these things, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is uh, revealed against all sin and one day will be revealed perfectly and judges all sin in the day of judgment. Uh, he, Paul continues to say, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things. And, and here is the list that resembles the list in Ephesians. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Everything that would create antisocial behaviors, that would, um, that, that would misuse and mistreat other people that God created in His own image. It says those things, they are serious things. They relate to your old life. Get rid of them. But then he continues, not just in the negative. He says, I want your calling to embrace the positive. And then in verses 12 to 15, he expresses the real practical implications of that. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, that is your position. 
That is your standing with God. That is your, your already uh, God-given identity. We don't get our identity from performing, but it's because of our identity we live out a holy life. It says, as chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. And keep on forgiving one another. That's really the, 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 the proper interpretation of that. Um, for you, uh, if any of you has a grievance uh, against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That means live out your Lord's nature and His behavior. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Why? Since you, as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. You can see that Paul's expressions are not only positional, positional righteousness, positional sanctification, but they practical acts of holiness, to live virtue, virtuous life and to let go of a sinful life, to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, to express the nature of God and to not express the nature of your old uh, sinful nature. Can you see that it's practical in its implication? So here, Paul expresses the two different aspects, the thread that we spoke about that is obvious through the scripture that help us why we should live a godly life. We live a godly life because we're called to be holy, because we are already holy in Christ. So in verse 1, he says, you've been raised with Christ. The, in verse 3, you, uh, the, 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 they are the indicatives. That's what God has done through us. The old has died with Christ. We have been united to Christ. We have taken off once for all, in verse 9, the old nature. We have, been, we have been able to put once for all the new self. This could refer to the time where people took off their clothes with baptism and put on the new self symbolically in baptism as they united to Christ. That's their identity and position but that then has implications and imperatives they have a commands that we need to live out we need to set our hearts and our minds on things above as in verse 1 and 2 we need to put to death the practices of sin that means we need to withhold ourselves from following our fallen nature and its desires and evil passions we need to read self of all behaviors you can't say well I'm saved now everything is alright and there's a sin and there is a sin no the Paul says no the very apostle of justification is saying you need to live in sanctification and he says close yourself with new conduct so I want to share with you three quick very brief ideas about the pattern of holiness that the New Testament believers live it is as simple as putting on and off clothing it's as simple it says take off and put on Take off and put on. Like when you are going to have a shower or if you've been on a camp, an outdoor camp, and, and you stunk over the last few days because you haven't had the opportunity to wash, to wash up. Uh, you, know, you know, Paul is saying, take that off. Say, I no longer want that and I want to put that. That means it's within your control to live a holy life. But then it's as serious as putting to death old manner 
of life. Put to death, that's pretty significant imagery there. It's brutal. It's ruthless. Do not compromise with with sin. Do not have things hidden. Do not hide behind your phone where nobody can see what's going on and and grab images that, that are ungodly or communicate with someone that you're not meant to communicate with or or engage in activities that, that are not according to God's standards. No, be serious. Say no. Say no to sin. Be serious and ruthless about sin. And then it's as sweeping as impacting the whole of life as you've seen throughout the chapter 3 and and chapter 4. It's related to every sphere of our life. Friends, the foundation and the motivation for us to pursue holiness uh, just like it's the life pattern of genuine New Testament believers. Believers pursue holiness because it's the life pattern of genuine New Testament believers. And here is what Paul, the summary of what Paul says. Since we have a new identity in Jesus, we ought to live consistently with our identity. We need to be consistent with our identity. Putting to death the old and putting into action the new manner of life. We so grateful to God that our position, our identities change. And now we're so grateful to Him that by the power of His Spirit, He allows us to live aligned to our identity by the power of the Spirit in practical holiness that resembles the nature that, 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 that Christ is, uh, is depositing in us, His very DNA by the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. It's our hard desire to stimulate and encourage you to believe that I want to live Christ-like life. I want to live a holy life regardless of what other Christians around me are promoting. Why? Because the people closest to the founder lived and promoted that lifestyle. It might not be contemporary and seeker sensitive and buzzy and sensationalist, but the reality is it's the reality of what gives you the greatest fulfillment in your walk with Jesus. Being fully alive as a human is being like Christ. And that is our prayer for you. Until we see you next time, be utterly blessed. God bless you. 